last week we finished the first two chapters of Judges. So we're on to chapter 3. And where we left off last time is Israel as they were fighting with the inhabitants of the land did a couple of things wrong right off the bat. The first one of these kings that they killed, and I don't remember his name right offhand, they treated him as would any nation who conquered somebody else at that time. They took the king and they cut his thumbs off and his big toes off and had him scrambling around under the table for scraps to humiliate him. And of course this king said, well, I did it to eight people, so I guess what goes around comes around. But Israel's instructions were not to behave like everybody else. Israel's instructions were to kill them all. And as I said, for whatever reason, God decided that he didn't want those people in the gene pool anymore. And so when Israel behaves like everybody else and starts taking vengeance, if you will, or trophies, if you will, that's their first mistake. And then the next thing that happens is as they conquer other places, they would go ahead and kill the men, but they take the women and children for slaves, or they would put the population under tribute, and again, they wouldn't wipe them out. As I said at the time, the instructions to wipe out an entire town, men, women, and children, is really tough duty. I would not want to be involved in that. So I am sympathetic to the fact that they didn't do what God told them to do because it was really hard. But what that leads to is they never conquer the entire land. So they wind up having some of the inhabitants are put under tribute. Some of them they never actually conquered. So in the case of Dan, if you see on the map behind me, Dan is on there two places. Dan is down there on the coast to the west of Ephraim. Well, Dan is unable to conquer that. So what will happen later on in the book is Dan will move up north, and you see Dan clear up at the top, and that becomes Dan's territory because they are unable to conquer the territory that they're given. So anyway, where we are is God has said, all right, you're not going to do what I told you to do, so I'm not going to drive them out before you, and you're just going to wind up living with them comment was the original land grant goes all the way up to the Euphrates and all the way down to the border of Egypt. And that's true. What God says to Joshua, and we're not doing Joshua so we didn't get that, is I will not drive everybody out ahead of you. I will only drive them out as fast as you increase in population and can fill up the land. So the idea was they would gradually move people out and expand as Israel itself increased in population and were able to occupy the land. And what he said was, I'm not going to do it all at once because if I do that, you aren't going to be able to live in it because there aren't enough of you. And so the land will become full of wild animals and stuff like that, and that's not what I want. So... And you see that same land grant in the book of Ezekiel, where you have the millennial temple, and it goes all the way up to the Euphrates and all the way down to the border of Egypt. That was the original idea here, but they didn't have enough people 
to occupy that much land when they started. So the plan was, we'll take it over gradually and as you get bigger. Chapter 3. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Camp out here for just a minute. You had the generation of the wilderness, and there were a number of different wars that happened in the wilderness. And certainly, as they took out Sihon and Og on the east bank of the Jordan, that generation went to war. And of course, the generation that crossed the Jordan with Joshua knew war. So the idea was the next generation has got to have its own wars in order to teach them how to fight. Now, a couple of things about that. One of the things that everybody prays about is peace. But in fact, the only way you ever have peace is if you're really good at war. Because otherwise, if you are not any good at war, your peace will either be the peace of slavery or the 20 minutes of peace until your neighbors discover that you're not any good at war and enslave you and put you under tribute or kill you. So God is nothing if not realistic. He made us. He understands us. He knows us. So the idea that he is setting Israel up with sort of a constant military training program, very practical. The other part of that is they didn't do what he said. So the people that they are fighting are a different group of people that they would have fought had they done what he said. In other words, if they had gone in and wiped them all out like God said to do, they would still have had wars to worry about, but they would have been wars with external enemies as opposed to wars with people that they are mixed with, which is a different kettle of fish. The comment was, so this is sort of the start of the thorn in the flesh. And yes, you're correct. The comment was that, as we're going to see in just a minute, Israel, since they didn't do what God said, wind up intermarrying with the people in the land. So given that they have intermarried, the question was, how genetically pure are the descendants of Jacob? You start with 12 tribes, which are direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we know who their progenitors are. We know every one of them, and they're all descendants of Abraham only. Once they start mixing, and once they start bringing a mixed multitude out of Egypt with them, the question is, how much of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still runs through their veins? Two answers. A, I don't know. And B, it doesn't matter, because one of the things that happened in this week's Torah portion, which goes directly to your question, is when all of Israel is standing and listening to the renewal of the covenant before Moses' death, he specifically says, I want everybody here, men, women, children, sojourners, Everyone who is physically with us as we're standing on the east bank of the Jordan getting ready to go in to Jericho, everybody is picked up in that covenant. So the covenant explicitly includes 
the mixed multitude and anybody else that they may have picked up along the way. So God knows who his people are. And there's a couple of reasons that some of it makes a difference. Of course, you know the New Testament where Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek. Everybody is in Messiah. So we are members of that covenant simply by our faith in Messiah. All right, now back up to the desert tabernacle. And you remember the camp in the desert where you've got the tabernacle in the middle. You've got the Levites clustered around the tabernacle. And then outside of the Levites, also arrayed around the tabernacle, you have the other 11 tribes. So the Levites, who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have got a special job. And that job they get by virtue of their birth. In other words, the only way you get to be a priest or a Levite is if your daddy was a priest or a Levite. So that's hereditary. Now, pop up to the new heaven and the new earth. What you see is the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And what you have inside of the new Jerusalem is the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they become, if you will, the logical equivalent of the Levites to the rest of the nations who are outside of the new Jerusalem. The rest of the nations are arrayed around the New Jerusalem much the way the 10 dragon, the 11 tribes were around the tabernacle. They're saved. They made it past the lake of fire. They are in God's kingdom, but they are not Israel. Israel still maintains a special calling and a special function. So God knows who his people are who are genetically Israel, and he's keeping track of them. We don't know who they all are, but he's keeping track of them. And so in the new heaven and the new earth, they will then take on a role analogous to the Levites around the temple. So back to your original question, how, to use air quotes, pure are descendants of Jacob today, I have no idea. God does. And when it becomes important, God will make it obvious. The point is, God does not drive out all of the inhabitants of the land. The reason he doesn't, of course, is because of Israel's disobedience. They don't wipe them all out like he told them to. And I am fond of saying that God is the ultimate lemonade maker. When life hands you lemons, make lemonade. God is the ultimate lemonade maker. So what God is doing is saying, all right, you guys didn't obey me. You didn't wipe them all out like I said to wipe them all out. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to use them as training devices to teach you guys how to do war. That was not plan A, that was plan B when they didn't obey. Here is a map that shows a couple of things that we're going to talk about now. So back to Judges 3. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-Hermon as far as Libo-Hamath. And in this map, you can see Libo-Hamath is up here and Mount Hermon is right here. And Libo 
Hamoth is up here. I wanted to show you that map so you can get, get yourself oriented. Verse 4. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Now, in addition to saying you've got to wipe them all out, God also specifically says don't intermarry. So they're not only not wiping them all out, and as I said earlier, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, and I understand that, but boy, I've got some sympathy for them because going through just slaughtering people is not at all pleasant. So now down to verse 7. This is Othniel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathayim. And what that means is Cushan doubly wicked. He's king of Mesopotamia. We'll talk about that in a minute. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathayim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. One of the commentaries I read said that Cushan, doubly wicked, may not have been the guy's given name. <laughs> it may have been whoever wrote this down gave him that title. The other thought, given that most of the enemies that Israel has are local, Mesopotamia, as all of you know, is hundreds of miles to the east. And you actually have to go up through the Fertile Crescent and down in order to bring an army that way. So one of the things that has been speculated, this guy may have been more local, but it is what it says. So I'm perfectly happy with that. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they went and defeated Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And you can see on this map, Jericho is north of the Dead Sea and west of the Jordan River, and it's known as the city of Palms. So Israel served Eglon and Moab for 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So Ehud was a judge, and he was also a courier. So when they took tribute to Moab, Ehud is the guy that took it. Verse 16, And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. And he bound it to his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. 
And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. And I think some of your translation may say quarries. Verse 19 again. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. Gilgal, remember, is just slightly north of Jericho. It is on the plain of the Jordan River. And as you remember, that was where the Israelites first camped when they crossed the river under Joshua. That was at Gilgal. That was their base camp. And from there they took Jericho. And then once they had taken Jericho, that's the place where they went up the pass to the central highlands and took Ai, Bethel, all of the cities in the saddle of Benjamin. So Gilgal is a place north of Jericho on the plain of the Jordan, which means it's down in the river bottom, not up on the hills. 19 again. I'll get through 19. I truly will. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And he came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out onto the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. So you get the picture here. Houses in the Middle East would have a flat roof. And that would be where you would go up because it would be cooler up on top of the roof. And Eglon has got himself a chamber up there where he can sit where it's nice and cool. It's got a lock with a door. So Ehud sticks him and then backs out, locks the door behind himself, and leaves. 23, maybe? Then Ehud went out onto the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. He has a toilet up there, and that's why he's got the door locked. 25. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still had not opened the doors to the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. He had escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. Nobody knows where Syrah is, except it's in the hill country of Ephraim. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. They killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So once the occupying garrison had been taken out, and notice the 10,000 were all strong, able-bodied men, which means that they were the palace garrison, if you will. And once they were taken out, then 
Israel was able to do Moab. The Bible records, we slew 10,000 of them. Question was, did we lose any of our own? There's only two biblical battles that I know of that it explicitly mentioned that there are no Israelite casualties. And the first one is, oddly enough, against the Midianites, which were allied with the Moabites. Remember the incident with Baal-peor, where the Moabite babes came across and came into the Israelite camps? And Moses mounted a punitive expedition and went and whacked the Midianites. And it specifically said when they came back, the commander said, we have not lost a single man. Two is Gideon, where Gideon has got his 600 guys, or however many guys he's got. I don't remember what it is. We'll get there presently. It'll be in this book, so we'll get there. So Gideon has got his small raiding party. And, of course, God sows confusion among the Midianites again. And they destroy themselves, and Gideon doesn't lose anybody in that battle. As far as I know, those are the only two battles that Israel participates in where it explicitly says we didn't lose anybody. Full stop. Reading modern Israelite history, one of the things that they say is we give glory to God and we do not count our losses. So the idea here is we give glory to God for the victory and we don't mention our own losses. Yeah, the comment was it makes more sense than supernaturally winning every battle and not losing anybody. I understand that. But there are two in the Bible that explicitly say we didn't lose anybody. And those are the only two that I know of. The rest of them just seem like normal battles and we killed 10,000 of them here and so forth. The comment was when Israel was coming across the Jordan under Joshua and they took out Jericho, Achan got big eyes and took some loot and buried it in his tent. So then they went up against Ai, which they should have been able to take easily, and they got routed and they lost some number of their own people, but they also got run out and they lost the battle. And then they came back and they said, all right, who did it? And they finally get to Achan and he confesses and they stone him. And then from there on, they prevailed under Joshua. When they say they took out 10,000 of the Moabites, does that mean they didn't lose any of themselves? I'm saying not necessarily. And let's do Shamgar and we'll quit. I don't want to start Deborah with just 10 minutes because Deborah is a cool map exercise. Judges 3.31. After him was Samgar, the son of Anoth, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. That's all that's mentioned about him until you get to the song of Deborah. And if you go to Judges 5 and in verse 6, he is mentioned again. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Yael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose, I, Deborah, as a mother in Israel. So in the days of Shamgar, he was not able to guarantee safe travel on the roads in Israel. And we'll talk about that more when we get to Deborah and Barak 
next time. That is the series of Judges up until Deborah. Deborah and Barak are going to get a lot more ink and a lot more detail on what's going on. One of the things that apparently is going on in Samgar's time is, as I say, commerce is severely restricted, not because of enemies, although that may be the case. It may also have been bandits. Again, fast forward to the New Testament. The story of the Good Samaritan. For those of you who have been to Israel, going from Jerusalem down to the Jordan River, you go down this mountain pass. And in fact, it was so notorious for bandits that the Romans had a garrison set up about halfway down to keep the bandits under control. And the thing about the Good Samaritan is when he goes down, he's set upon by bandits. And they beat him and strip him and and so forth. So the fact that people can't travel safely on the roads could be due to foreign interference. It could also be to Israel not being strong enough to keep the bandits under control and you were beset by highway robbers. There'll be a reference under Deborah of people riding on white donkeys, which indicates wealth, and I'm sort of assuming that those people were able to pay the toll, if you will, to go where they want. We'll talk about that next time, because that'll be the subject next time. (laughs) 